Well, you may recall from last week that I said the primary point of this passage is to underscore that you are not David. That you need the faithfulness of the Lord's anointed to save you. And in fact, it's only by his faithfulness that we are saved. I underscored that in biblical hermeneutics or in in the task of interpreting the Bible, where we start is with God's provision of our need and we move from that point then to what our response should be. So in doing Christian theology, we always start with what's known as indicative, the statement of fact, or the statement of what is. And the statement of what is in this passage is that God's anointed saves us. David had a son whose name was Jesus. And Jesus went to the cross waging war against our greatest foe. And so Jesus, as the son of David, is the ultimate fulfillment of this passage The statement of what is, therefore, is that Jesus saves you. But we move from that indicative to the imperative, the call to action. What then are we to do? What are we to do? We talked last week about how this passage is so full of detail. It's a unique passage in the Bible. No other passage in the Old Testament gives this much attention to a singular enemy of the people of God. No other passage in the Old Testament records as many of the words of the opponent of God's people as does this passage. It truly is a special piece of scripture. And the primary point, as I said just now, is that only the Lord's anointed one can save you. But from that, there is still a legitimate place for seeing in this passage a call to action. How can you, as a child of God, as one of the people of God, respond in times of difficulty. The people of Israel had been subject to hundreds of years of a recurring cycle of oppression and liberation as they would go from patterns of sin to patterns of repentance. And here, having desired a king like the nations, and were given a king that mirrored their expectations. He was exactly what they wanted and all of his shortcomings. They're stuck again at an impasse because of the cycle of sin and they literally cannot proceed. What are we to do? I don't know about you, but when I look at passages like this and I see David or I look at Noah or I look at Job or I look at Daniel or I look at Abraham, or I look at the New Testament, or I consider some of the people that are heroes of mine throughout the history of the church, I think, what faith? I wish I could have faith like that. What do I do, got to do to have a faith like that so I can do the kind of big things that they do? Some people in, in modern church history haven't done big things in the sense of, of, of killing nine-foot-tall giants, but think of the missionaries who, who have gone and, and they go into the face of, of, of known certain death, but they go anyway. And because of the seeds sown by their life, ministry, and even their death, the kingdom flourishes in those. What faith to throw away their life. But did they throw it away? 
the question before us is, do we really, do we really need something more? Has God, when he gave us the faith to believe, has he held out on us? Do we need to look somewhere else to find what we need to confront the giants in our land? Or has God, in fact, by giving us faith, given us everything we actually need? Has he? Out from the ranks of the Philistines came the champion, the giant from Gath named Goliath. At nine and a half feet tall, with his 120-pound armor, he was a shock and awe display. And what is the immediate response of the people of God when he opens his mouth? Absolute terror. In verse 29, the same giant comes out, utters the same words as before, and David hears him. The text points that out. David heard him. What is his initial reaction? Indignation. What's the, what's the difference? Terror, indignation. What's the difference? The difference was in everything in their background. These people, the people of Israel, the army that was assembled, all the way from the lowest private to the highest commander, were terrified. David comes out And he doesn't just see a nine-foot-tall man. He sees something that needs to be put down like a wild dog. The difference is entirely their attitude and their understanding of reality based upon their understanding of who God is and what God does. Attitude is everything. So what I want to do in this passage, from this passage today, is highlight some if you will, ABCs for how this passage should help us inform our approach to handling difficulty. So I've titled this message, The ABCs of Facing Difficulty. I do believe this passage has a lot to say because it doesn't matter if you're on the field of battle. It doesn't matter if you're a homemaker. It doesn't matter if you're in corporate America or in the church eventually you're going to have an obstacle come in front of you that's going to elicit some sort of response from you. You are going to have obstacles and obstructionists in your way. And the same word that was spoken to Cain back in Genesis 4-7 is spoken to us. Sin is crouching at our door and its desire is for us. Sin is crouching, and it wants you. And any opportunity it can take to seize hold of you, to pounce on you, it will do so. What is sin's primary aim? Well, sin's primary aim is to keep you from fulfilling your primary purpose. And what is your primary purpose? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So if sin can keep you from glorifying and enjoying God, it has done its job. Sin isn't necessarily trying to make every one of you the next Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy. Sin just wants you to not find your joy in the Lord. 
And if it does that, it wins. So we're all going to face trials. We're all going to face troubles. We're all going to face some annoying circumstance that we just can't seem to get around, and it's going to elicit a response. And you have two choices. You can either give in and yield to those sinful impulses and be derailed from fulfilling your great purpose in life. Or you can respond in a godly manner and confront the problem in a biblical godly way and in fact find your faith growing even in the face of the trial. Attitude is everything. So, sin puts blinders on us. It keeps us focused on the here and now and the apparent insurmountability of our circumstances. And I want to rip those blinders off so you can see that what appears to be real, what appears to be true, is not always the case. So, there are, th- there are four, I said ABCs, that's ABCD, right? Okay, so ABCD. The first A, or the first is A, arrest your sinful response tendencies. Arrest your sinful response tendencies. In verse 4, Goliath comes out and he's taunting them. He's mocking them. He ridicules them. He humiliates them. He basically calls them little sissy girls. Now, if I come out here and I mock you and taunt you and call you little sissy girls, have I sinned against you? Yeah. He sins against them. Now, in that moment, Goliath is an example of someone or something that we think is an insurmountable difficulty. It's something before which we feel completely hopeless and defeated. Maybe it's a besetting sin. Maybe it's a difficult circumstance. Maybe it's a trying relationship. There's something before which you feel humiliated. Now, here's the, rea- here's the reality of how sin works. When we feel sinned against, when we are sinned against, or even when we just feel sinned against, we think that whatever response we have is justified. We're justified in how we respond. But sinners typically respond sinfully to being sinned against. When someone comes and sins against you, your response as a fallen sinful being is oftentimes to respond sinfully. Just look Look at all the kinds of emotional and verbal responses the people of God have to what Goliath does. There's terror. There's judgmentalism. There's fear. There's irritability. There's hopelessness. There's self-centeredness. There's skepticism. There's dismay. All these things well up because they feel hopeless in the face of their problem. Now, you can be sure that wherever you have these sinful responses, these emotions that are just overwhelmed, you can be sure that in those moments, God and the functional power of his presence has been pushed to the periphery in your mind. You may confess the existence of God. You may confess But as a functional operating influence in your life, the presence and power of God has been marginalized. 
And we respond in these ways because we feel hopeless and yet we're desperate to bring some sort of measure of influence and control over our circumstance, but we can't. And so we feel the frustration. And you may say, Ben, they're facing a giant that they can't do anything about. Fear and irritability is a legitimate response. Well, the Bible acknowledges the presence of fear. But when you're afraid, you have a couple choices to make. Look at Psalm 56. This acknowledges fear. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an oppressor attacks me. My enemies trample on me. For how many attack me proudly? When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? So that's your option A. When faced with something that's insurmountable and you're feeling and sensing these sinful responses of fear and dismay and discouragement and and irritability and judgmentalism and skepticism, you can say, I'm going to arrest that. And remember that God is with me. Or you can be like these people and push God to the margins. That's what they did. But here's the deal. If you push God to the margins, and if you respond sinfully, then you have yielded the power that God has for you in his presence because God does not accomplish his purposes through sinful means. Do not disavail yourself of what God's power for you is in that moment. Arrest those sinful impulses so that way you can access God's power. Remember, when God promises to be with us, he means it. He didn't promise to save us from all of our troubles, but he promised to be with us in the midst of it and to build his kingdom in spite of it. So God is with you. Don't forget it, despite how much sin might be trying to get you to forget. But then, after arresting these sinful impulses, which have to be arrested, you need to become a good theologian, and that's B. David is a consummately good theologian. So that's B. Become a good theologian. Verse 46 and 47 are very telling verses. David is talking at Goliath in verses 46 and 47, but I'm convinced he's not talking to Goliath. Quite frankly, why talk to someone and give this spiel to someone he's about to cut off, he's about to behead, right? He's not talking to Goliath, he's talking at Goliath. He's talking to the people who were gathered around. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Okay, could it be that the reason David felt the need to utter those words to remind the people that this victory would remind them that there is a God in Israel and that the Lord works not through human means was because perhaps they needed to hear it? That in their sinful response tendency of despair, they had forgotten the power, purpose, and presence of God for them as 
his covenant Lord? Could it be? And could it be that we often forget that God is with us too? All we see is a big problem? David understands that the heart of the issue is not their strategies. The heart of the issue is not their military technology. The heart of the issue is a theological problem in which God has been made smaller than that man. And so he redirects them to the bigness of God. I would challenge you. When you are feeling discouraged, scared, overwhelmed, focus on the bigness of God. It seems esoteric. That's not relevant. God is the great maker of all things. He's the most relevant being there is. Consider this excerpt from one of Charles Spurgeon's sermons when he was only 20 years old. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. And whilst humbling and expanding this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was right. And this is what David has done. He's been a shepherd boy. He goes on and he writes many of the Psalms. He has reflected deeply upon the person of God. And everything he knows about how God works is based upon his understanding of who God is. And so David made much of God. And he knew that God would never abandon his covenant people. He knew that God would vindicate his name. And so therefore, when God's name was defamed and God's people were oppressed, he knew that God would act. But David was not just a theoretical theologian. He was a practical theologian. He understood that God works providentially through means. And I think this is a truth that many of us need to figure out. God works providentially through means. In his interview with Saul in verses 31 through 39, he acknowledges that while he was shepherding these sheep, if a bear or a lion came, he would go after it and he would rescue it and that he would strike it down and kill it. But then he says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the bear and the paw of the lion will save me from the hand of the Philistine. Okay? So he understands that his human action of going out and saving the sheep from the bears and the lions was the instrumental means by which God was delivering. Your actions are not juxtaposed away from God's sovereignty. God works through human means. And so that means you need to develop your skill at responding to the circumstances you're in. David gets dressed in Saul's armor. 
and he will not go out and fight in that armor. Not because he's a little boy in his daddy's clothes, but because he'd never worn armor before. And you don't go fight a battle when your life is on the line with gear and equipment you don't know how to use. So in faith, David took the armament he knew how to use, his sling. And his sling was not some child's toy like it's made out to be. It was a legitimate weapon of war. In fact, Judges 20 verse 16 tells us that in the tribe of Benjamin, there were 300 slingers who could hit a hair without missing. David had practiced and practiced. One of the things that's overlooked, more times than not, you will hear this story preached as if this was a miracle. No, it wasn't. It was the application of years of skill. The Bible does not shy away from pointing out when God shows up and does a miracle. Here, David just knew that God works providentially through human means. And so David, after learning how to be proficient with that weapon of war, he goes out and where everyone else sees an ironclad tank, you know what he sees? A nine and a half foot man has a mighty big fat face. I can hit that face. (laughs) Because he saw the bigness of God. Now, he used the weapons that he was familiar with to do the Lord's work. And he understood that through him using his weapon with skill, that it would be the Lord delivering his people. So why in the world do so many of us sit around thinking that the way to have a, a better marriage is just to pray about it? That the way to lose weight is just to pray about it. Multiple times in the book of Joshua, Joshua's just praying about it. And what happens? The angel of the Lord's army shows up, get up, it's time to do something. Multiple times. How many losers have I met who are just praying for a spouse and they won't leave their parents' basement? Looking for a better job, hoping that one will just miracle itself on their doorstep. Oliver Cromwell Said it best, trust God and keep your gunpowder dry. You got to do something. And it's the Lord who works through the doing of your stuff to accomplish his purpose. That is being a good practical theologian. I would tell people in the army, you know, they would have a problem with their leadership, their NCO. Okay, God has put you in a very bureaucratic organization. You can get stuff done, but you got to know how to use the system. So become a good, proficient user of the system and trust that God will work through that. We're a Presbyterian church. We're not a congregational church. We're not, a, we're not an Episcopalian church. So if you want to get stuff done, you've got to learn the Presbyterian way. At your place of employment, you've got to learn the way. If you want to be able to defend your family, you've got to attend case class. <laughs> become a good theologian. Remember that God doesn't abandon you. He expects you to implement sound practice in light of his bigness and entrust the results to him, which is exactly what Davis did. C, cultivate patterns of faithfulness. Do not think that you can do nothing and then show up on test day and ace the test. How many of you teachers have had students who thought they could have that strategy? Their test-taking strategy was praying the night before for the Holy Spirit to open their mind. 
Okay, it doesn't work. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe the Lord will do that for someone. But tip, nine times out of ten, the Lord lets you reap what you sow. And if you haven't studied, don't expect him to enlighten your mind the night before the test. Study. But you got to cultivate the patterns of faithfulness. This is why the text is so careful to point out that David has been going back and forth. He's been honoring his king, honoring his father. When he leaves, he makes sure to leave the sheep in, in the care of a keeper. When he gets to the camp, he leaves the goods in, with the quartermaster. He, he's doing everything right. He's dotting all his I's and crossing all of his T's because he knew that faithfulness in the little things lays the foundation for success in the important things, the great things. Do not think that your life right now is wasted some of you kids, you can't wait to graduate. You can't wait to get out on your own and, and just get going. Do not underestimate the value of the now for cultivating entire patterns that will help you in years to come. Think about it. David has had success out in the shepherd field with those few sheep, as his brother derides. And that leads to success on the battlefield. He's been playing since the end of chapter 16, harp for the king. Just a nobody on the side. Is, is it possible that just sitting there in the shadows, being exposed to court life and to how a king works and the advisors and all that, that that probably paid dividends years later? Yeah. Right now matters. And you may feel like you're spinning your wheels or that your life is being squandered or wasted. No. Use right now to develop the patterns that you can build upon in years to come. Lastly, D, deal decisively with sin. Contrary to every superhero movie, there's no great monologue. There's a, there's a, once the battle is joined, David doesn't half take him down and then gloat for the next 10 minutes, giving him a chance to escape. Okay? There's no twiddling around with sin here. As soon as the battle is joined, in the Hebrew, it's like one, one unbroken swift movement. David runs forward, grabs a stone, puts it in the sling, and smacks the guy. Fast. How many times do we prolong our misery in a situation because we think that the way to go around is just to tap dance around the problem? Deal with it. Arrest the sinful response tendencies. When you feel that despair or that anger or that irritability welling up inside you, recognize it's coming from a fount that is probably sinful. Arrest it. Bring it in. Because only when that has cleared away can you see the right course of action. Operate out of good theology. Be a good theologian. Cultivate those patterns of faithfulness. And then in the moment, deal decisively. I'm not saying that decisively dealing with sin means cutting off the head of whoever's across from you. That's not what I'm saying. But every problem presents its opportunity to be decisive. Maybe it's online pornography and you've got to just cut off the internet. Or maybe it's gambling and you've got to have someone else in control of your finances. Maybe it's alcohol abuse and you need to just cut it out. I don't know what it is. But in every circumstance, there's a way to be decisive about it. Do that. David models here 
what it means to be a faithful disciple by having good theology. And he operates out of that throughout this whole passage in contrast to the people who are stuck in that cycle of sin because they will not adopt and arrest those sinful response tendencies. Brothers and sisters, God's word is great. And my prayer for you is that you will see that it lays out a pattern for you to respond faithfully in the midst of any difficulty. Let's pray.